Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Sorry, we were having some technical difficulties here. I think it might be remnants of Hurricane Sandy up here on the mountain. But anyway, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. We're here on Friday, November 2nd, 2012, and this week is episode 262, coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining us from Studio C back in the McKees Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe, how are you? Good day, Cliff. I'm better now. We're on. <laughs> We're yeah, I hear you. For a minute. At the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hi, everyone. Joining us from Carnegie will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include, of course, the IAQ radio trivia question. We'll have an interview with Dr. Cook from the National Institute of Environmental Health. Dr. Donald Cook, that would be. We'll have our halftime. We'll thank our sponsors, of course, and then we'll go to the roundup at the end. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. To listen live or download past shows, just follow the link from the iaqradio.com website. It says go to show. It's at the top of the page. You can also stream shows directly from our homepage. And, of course, you can download past shows from iTunes or at that GoToShow button. We also have transcripts of shows available now, some select shows. And we have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Thanks, Joe.
win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. I'm sorry to report that last week's trivia question remains unanswered. The IAQ Radio trivia question for Friday, November 2nd, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the term for which the following is the definition. The ability to produce toxins is the underlying mechanism by which many bacterial pathogens produce disease. Back to you, Joe. All right. Let's uh, first, uh, we, Dr. Cook is going to be joining us at about quarter after, maybe, I, I, I don't remember exactly, maybe even 20 after. But what we're going to do this week is we're going to have Donald N. Cook. Dr. Cook is going to be joining us to talk a little bit about a recent research project they did on the um, asthma and allergy issue with respect to dust in homes and the uh, bacteria and issues that cause the uh, allergy and asthma uh, to flare up and, and how it flares up. But we'll get into that in a moment. Before I, I start, I want to also note that his recent research indicates a specific component of the bacteria found in common house dust activates the immune system so that people are more likely to develop allergies to real allergens. Donald Cook is the head of Immunogenetics Group. He earned his Ph.D. in Microbiology and Immunology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He has published 43 peer-reviewed articles in leading biomedical journals as well as several book chapters. He served as a principal scientist at Sharing Plow Research Institute and as an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Duke University before joining the National Institute of Environmental Health Science in 2005. So we'll look forward to bringing him on when he uh, joins us here. But before we do, we, we talked to him about setting this up a little bit with a couple of clips from old shows. And what we'd like to do first is play a clip from a show with an MD uh, who is uh, doc Dr. Sublet, Jim Sublet. And uh, Val, do you have that clip? Let's do a little quick review of exactly what is asthma first, and uh, maybe you could give us a definition of asthma to start with. Okay, well, asthma is a chronic illness. Uh, generally starts in childhood. Most uh, people who have asthma have, um, if you dig into their history, they'll go back into childhood. Uh, it really has three components, uh, we think. Uh, one um, would be uh, uh, bronchospasm, which is uh, the medical term for when the airways get twitchy. So you have your, if you think your, of your bronchial tree, like a tree turned upside down with the leaves being the, uh, the uh, lung facts, the, the bronchial uh, airway is actually where the problem is with asthma. It doesn't really affect the air exchange down in the lungs, but you have... Um, Obstruction in the in the, uh, the the limbs and trunks of this of this bronchial tree, 
And uh, one of the um, characteristics is the, these, uh, the um, passageways get twitchy and they become uh, spasmodic and they, they'll, they'll close down, kind of shut down when people are having problems with their asthma. Uh, another hallmark of asthma is inflammation. That's really the underlying problem, and that's uh, in about 8 out of 10 times caused by underlying allergy problems. So people, a great number of people that have, aller- that have asthma have allergies, and the reverse of that is about 1 out of 5 people that have allergies have asthma. Uh, and then the third component is the result of all that inflammation in the airway, you develop uh, increased mucus production. So those three things are what results in uh, what we call asthma. We we had a great show with Doctor Sublette. He is uh, he was the at the time on the the board of the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, a leading MD in asthma and allergy issues. We also wanted to get a quick review of the definition of allergy. Is that the one you have next, Val? All right, let's go back through that definition. What's an allergy? An allergy, what we call as allergist, uh, is an immune response. Uh, you know, the lay public tends to call allergy generically just about anything that causes a respiratory irritation. But we, uh, as allergists, think of this as an immune response that's um, triggered uh, by a... Um, an antibody we call IgE. I know Don Olette, I mean, uh, John Olette calls it uh, the evil antibody, IgE. Mm-hmm. But uh, everyone's capable of making a little bit of it. The people that have allergies are predisposed, again, genetically to make a lot of it. And then they'll make a aller- a, this antibody against very specific things. You know, for instance, I mentioned alternaria moles. You may have an antibody made against an alternaria mole. When you get around that that mold spore, you then react, and it triggers an allergic response. Kind of a way to uh, picture this would be like if you if you think of being burned, because that's what happens in an allergy response. You get a inflammation, usually of the mucosal membranes in the uh, airway and the, either the nose or sinuses of the lung. So that's kind of like the allergy response. Kind of acts like a flame, and that that burns the airway and you then you have the inflammation and that's what we distinguish between what we call an irritant trigger which would be after you've got the inflammation you may get around something like a strong odor or a smell and that will trigger a very similar type end result but you're not really allergic to that odor or smell you just have the irritation of that now some people will have a direct effect where they don't really have the allergy immune response and, and some people may have a overreaction, so to speak, to, um, you know, strong odor smells, particulates, and so forth. Okay. Now, that, that was Dr. Sublette, and if you want to hear the whole show, that was back on show 89, back in the archives. Now, we also have a quick clip, that, and that last part was very important, ties into our discussion today and, and how some of these different... Uh, mechanisms occur with respect to irritation, how it starts, and how the immunological response starts. The other thing I wanted to touch on is a segment we did with Dr. John Woolett. This was on episode 85, and and the Z-Man actually came in here and had a question. We were talking a little bit about bacteria. I want to just play this one out, and then I see Dr. Cook has joined us, so we'll get him on the line. Can you talk a little bit about endotoxins and whether or not they play a role in allergic response? 
I never thought you'd ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everybody gets excited about mold because we can see that. What we don't see is the gram-negative bacteria. If we have a sewer backup, if we have a wet carpet, if we have a dog that drags his butts and cut across <laughs> the wet carpet and gets yeah. the gram-negative material all over that, we are going to grow. We're going to grow the uh, gram-negative bacteria. Now, when you start thinking about microorganisms, uh, we start thinking about weapons of mass destruction. Every particular organism out there has their weapons of mass destruction. So the endotoxin is going to be trying to fend off the molds. The molds are going to try to fend off them. So everyone can produce these toxins so that they can have their place uh, on the map. Well, the gram-negative bacteria produce endotoxin, and that's a, a large molecule that if all I can tell our people listening, if you go into a wet damp house or one with a sewer or you don't even need a sewer backup to get that. And then all of a sudden you get flu-like symptoms, you get headache, you feel just terrible, you feel rotten, and you're, you'll get inflammation of the airway, you get a stuffy nose, post-nasal drainage, cough. Those are the classic symptoms that one gets uh, from that toxic product produced by endotoxin. Probably the guru of endotoxin is uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Milton uh who was with Harvard and Jack Spengler, who's the head of environmental and occupational uh, environmental and occupational diseases from Harvard. And way back when I got into that, they were writing about the effects of uh, endotoxin. And, and um, uh, Don Milton told me when we were at a course together at the University of Michigan, he said, someday you're going to find out that endotoxin is probably the cause of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, or COPD in most people, and it's amazing how uh, that particular uh, how, how this keeps this seemingly that 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 how prophetic he was with that statement. So it's a very important material that's probably in every wet, damp houses. When we go back to the courthouse, we always talked about that courthouse case back in Florida, where. Uh, people had headaches and they were sick and they were trying to do it all by studying moles. I would bet that place where the water in there was just stacked with endotoxin and that was the cause of that wall of diseases. As a matter of fact, they wanted to have a, a, a court case in there and the judge had so much asthma he had to get out of it when they were getting into this. Well, so, I just want to interrupt you for, for, for one second because I believe you're absolutely right. I saw a presentation made by uh, the lead investigator and the person that took all of these samples in that building. And they had an aerial view of the building. And guess what showed up in the aerial view as being directly next to that building was a sewage treatment plant, literally hey. ne- literally next door to it. Is that true? Absolutely. I, but I would bet that is. And, and you know, the, the non- the people who said the glass is half empty when it comes to the building science and that we're barking up the wrong tree, these people never bring in the business of endotoxin as being an important part. I asked, I asked the investigator how many mold samples that he took, and these numbered, in, if I'm not mistaken, in the tens of thousands. Thousands. That was Dr. Hodgson of uh, 
Thompson was one of them. Uh, I, th this actually was Phil Morey. And, and I, asked I asked Dr. Morey how many bacterial samples did he take, and it was zero. Yeah. Interesting. Very great. Very good. All right. We, that was show 85 with Dr. John Woolett. Great guy. One of my favorite shows and one of the early pioneers in, as an MD, doing environmental health, but also combining it with building science issues and going out and actually investigating homes on his own. So if you get a chance, check that out. Now, we've got Dr. Cook on the line. We're going to first play his intro music real quick. Allergies to dust and rain Maladies, remedies Still these allergies remain Okay, Dr. Cook, do we have you on the line? I'm here. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I, I don't know if you got to hear much of the clip we played earlier, but we kind of set this up with a clip on the definition of asthma, the definition of allergy from Dr. Sublet, uh, who was with the AAAI and has his own practice in Kentucky. And then we brought on Dr. Woolett to talk a little bit about bacteria. And, and we wanted to do that because we knew your time was limited. The article we wanted to talk to you about actually was – the initial article that caught my eye was titled Bacterial Protein in House Dust Spurs Asthma, According to NIH Study. And I wanted to get your opinion on the, the title of the article. Does that accurately reflect, you think, what your study shows? Yeah, I think uh, there's a good possibility that uh, the, the flagellin does exactly that, that it, that it spurs asthma. Uh, we're going to need some some more uh, information before we can conclusively state that, but that's certainly uh, what was indicated by the, the study that, the studies that we did. Now, can you just touch on the, what allergic asthma is versus asthma? Is there a difference, and and what the difference is? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm not a physician, so uh, you know, take take this with what, what you will. But um, so asthma is basically uh, inflammation of the airways and an airway constriction, and they they work together to to um, narrow the airways so that it's more difficult to breathe. And, and, and it's thought that um, uh, allergic responses are responsible for a lot of that. So most people that have asthma have a have an allergic type of asthma, but not everybody does. But most people that have asthma do. Okay. Cliff, did you want me to keep going or you want to follow up on that? No, no, you can keep going. All right, because I've got this laid out pretty well, I think. Now, help me if you can here. <laughs> First, I, I want to get the full title of your paper here. It's the Toll-like Receptor 5 Ligand Flagellin Promotes Asthma by Priming Allergic Responses to Indoor Allergens. I, I hope I pronounced everything right. If not, I'm sure you can correct me there. Um, can you break that down for us and tell us in layman's terms exactly what this says? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think it's going to be helpful to really define what flagellin is. So flagellin is a protein. It's a bacterial protein. And, and this protein, uh, monomers of this protein kind of self-assemble to form a whip-like structure that, that actually is what the bacteria use to swim. So flagella actually does mean whip in Latin. 
And so flagellin is the protein that makes up this organelle called flagella. Okay, so the words sound similar, but they mean slightly different things. One is the protein and one is the, the organelle that bacteria have. And so what we found is that uh, flagellin, the protein uh, in bacteria, is very good at, at promoting or enhancing allergic responses uh, when it's inhaled into the lung. So it's not an allergen itself, but it can enhance allergic responses to true allergens. And so when we found that, uh, we wondered whether, okay, it can do this in, in the laboratory in certain types of settings. We wondered if it was actually an important uh, component of house dust, uh, which has been shown to be associated, different things have been shown to be associated with asthma. And what we found is that, that mice that could not respond to the flagellin because they lacked this particular receptor called toll-like receptor 5, uh, also had diminished responses, diminished allergic responses to the house dust, suggesting that this receptor that responds to flagellin is important in, in amplifying these allergic responses. And so the, the, the third major thing that we found was that uh, we then turned to, to, to humans and we found that individuals, asthmatics that is, uh, had higher levels of antibodies to this flagellin, suggesting that they'd been exposed to more of it. Uh, and then by, by implication, uh, it was a flagellum would, in the house dust would be a, uh, a risk factor for, uh, for asthma. So that's, that's the basic idea uh, under, for our study. So it's not a, it's not, you're not allergic to the flagellum itself. It just kind of uh, primes the pump, so to speak? So exactly, yeah. So these, these kinds of things that aren't allergens themselves but can enhance immune responses are typically called adjuvants. And so when you get a, a vaccine, for, for example, to some sort of virus or, or bacteria, whatever it is, you've, you've got the protein from the virus, but that might not be in itself strong enough to get a good immune response going that's going to help, help you protect against that infection. So what's happened, what people usually do is, is mix some things in there that are called adjuvants that enhance the immune response to that viral protein so you become immune to it. So that's what an adjuvant is. So we think that flagellin is acting as an uh, allergy-promoting adjuvant in this way. So even though it's not an allergen itself, it can enhance allergic responses to other things. Are there a lot of these adjuvants? I mean, adjuvants. Adjuvants. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I, I heard earlier you were, were talking about endotoxin or, or lipopolysaccharide, uh, which is uh, the guest earlier you, you was mentioning this, um, and so. LPS, or, or the activity that it has, endotoxin, is also an adjuvant. Um, and so it's, it's, these things um, are often bacterial products. Uh, and, and, and the reason they act as adjuvants is that uh, the body recognizes bacteria as being a problem. And so these are um, what's what are called innate immune responses. That is, that they, uh, the body is inherently able to recognize infection by bacteria, uh, by recognizing specific products of the bacteria, and they promote inflammation, which in turn helps the body clear the bacteria. But these, these products also uh, activate a, a part of the immune system called the adaptive immune system. And, and that adaptive immune system uh, is what kind of clicks in uh, when we see that same pathogen again. So if you get sick once from a virus, uh, that you know, it, it doesn't happen a second time because you're immune to it, and these uh, and these adjuvants 
promote immune responses that help you clear the bacteria, but in this case, it's promoting allergic responses, so it's not a helpful response in this case. Cliff? I, I guess uh, I have two questions. I guess the first is uh, I've never re- heard the word adjuvant used in the way in, in which you've used it. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the term from uh, you know, pest control and and. You know, other types of, of, of treatment. It would almost is there a difference between the word synergist and adjuvant? Well, I, I guess um, synergy is is when um, two things that on their own have minimal activity or, or, or a modest activity, uh, but when you put them together, the the, the sum of the parts is is or the effect is greater than the sum of the individual parts. So it's like two plus two equals ten. In other words, that's that's kind of what what I think of as synergy. Uh, an adjuvant is is really it's it's kind of like um, uh, what what enzymes do in in biochemical reactions. So enzymes are involved in in converting one product to another. So it facilitates that conversion, even though it might not be itself changed in that reaction. So so adjuvants are are, are kind of thought to be have a similar function in the immune system, so it, so it promotes immune responses without necessarily having any response directed against it. If you see what I mean? I do. Where does most bacteria in household dust come from? That's a that's a great idea, a uh, great question, and uh, I'm not sure that that anyone really has a, a real strong idea on that. Um, I think it's going to vary from household to household, depending on things like whether they're pets in the home or not, whether there's kids in the home. Of course, kids are not the cleanest individuals in the world sometimes. It's going to depend on how often you clean the house. Uh, so those kinds of things are going to uh, impact the, the kind of bacteria that, that are present. And so, so until recently, really, the, the way people have been able to identify the kinds of bacteria is culturing them. Uh, and then, so if uh, a bacteria sort of goes in the, grows in this media, it's, uh, but not this media, it's this type of bacteria. But more recently, uh, it's, we've been now able to do this by DNA analysis. And it was recently shown that there's actually hundreds of different types of bacteria, uh, many of which uh, grow on plants. Uh, so they're, they're not all uh, bacteria that, that grow on humans, for example. Uh, or animals, so there's, there's a lot of uh, different types of bacteria, and, and, and the exact proportions of these different types are really going to depend on on where you live and and, and how you live. Uh, one source, of course, is um, uh, moist places uh, tend to uh, be good breeding grounds for bacteria. So, for showers, for example, um, uh, wet floors, those kinds of things tend to promote uh, the growth of, of bacteria, such as uh, Pseudomonas is one type of bacteria that that grows very readily in those moist conditions. And I guess you know, household dust. A lot of household dust includes skin cells as well. And I would think bacteria would love that. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's been any, any studies done to to show how much of these skin cells act as a food source for bacteria. But it seems perfectly reasonable to me that that might happen. Let's get back to the flagellum for a moment. Is this found in the same? Uh, let's first say, is it found in all bacteria? No. So, so it, it allows some bacteria to to, to swim. Uh, not all bacteria need to swim, so they don't all have flagella. Um, some some bacteria have a single flagellum, which is the the the, the singular term for it. 
some have two flagella or several flagella. Uh, and so actually it can, flagellin can represent as much as uh, getting close to 10% of the dry weight of bacteria, uh, which might not seem like much, but when you think that the total mass of bacteria on the planet is, is enormous and it's been reported to be as much as plants uh, and much more than that of humans or animals. So, so 8% of that enormous number is, is still a lot of flagellin. So... Uh, that that was that was one thing that uh, that after we found the flagellum was important. Uh, we kind of kind of thought about this, and, it, and it, it, we, the reason that the flagellum is like an extremely abundant protein uh, on the planet, but not all bacteria have it. Now, has flagellum has that been? I mean, have we known about this for a long time? Was this kind of something that? Uh, and w I guess once you answer that, was discovering that it kind of primed the pump for asthma and allergy, was that a big, you know, aha kind of thing? Like, wow, we never really had any idea that that was the case, and this is really some, very new? Yeah, so I think the, the, the latter finding is really new, um, that, it, that it can uh, prime allergic responses, and, and moreover, it is present in house dust and is actually an important component of the uh, allergy-inducing components of house dust. Uh, the, the, the finding of flagellin has, has been around for many, many years. Uh, it's, uh, you know, ever since people could look under a microscope and see bacteria swimming around and saw that little tail, it's been known. So that's, that's a very old observation. Uh, it's fairly more recent that, um, that the receptor uh, on mammalian cells for that particular protein has been found. But our, our finding that it seems to be very important in inducing allergic responses and is present in house dust uh, is, is, is new and, and very exciting to us and apparently to others as well. Cliff, any follow-up or you want me to go ahead? No, go ahead. All right, then I, I'd like to say, ask, so you've got this study, uh, we, we have the basics of it. I'm curious, what are the practical or potential practical implications of your research? Right, so it's so as I said, our, our research implies that exposure to flagellin is associated with an increased prevalence of asthma, but but we don't know that for sure. Uh, what we have shown is that that asthmatics have higher levels of antibodies to flagellin, uh, suggesting that they've been exposed to more of it. Um, but we don't know that. There's other explanations for that. For example, maybe asthmatics just generate antibodies better. It's not that they're exposed to more flagellin. And so one of the things that uh, I think is going to be important to do is to uh, measure the flagellin concentrations in, in various households. And, and, and to do this, these kinds of studies properly, you need to measure it in a large number of households. And then look to see if there's an association between the levels of flagellin in those households and the prevalence of asthma in those same homes. Uh, and, and, and if that's found a hold, then there's, then there's more evidence to suggest that exposure to flagellin uh, really does cause asthma, in which case it's going to be important to find out, uh, you know, do even more depth studies to find out which bacteria uh, are contributing to flagellin and whether there's ways of, of preventing that bacteria from uh, growing in the home. And when you say which bacteria, I'm, I'm curious, is there any relation with, we all often hear about gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria. Any, uh, any Anything we could tie together with the flagellum there? Well, I think that uh, either one can have, either one of those major groups of bacteria uh, can have uh, flagellum, although, uh, as I mentioned, not all of them do in, in either of those categories. So I don't think that gram-negative versus gram-positive per se is, 
it really determines if they they have flagellum. But there there may be um, some species. Well, there certainly are some species that within both that that, that have flagellum and could be uh, a major component of the bacteria in house dust. Okay. So it's interesting. Um, you know, just another thing uh, re- related to uh, gram-negative bacteria and and one of, one of the shows you had on earlier about endotoxin. Uh, an LPS, which is a component of bac- bacteria that also acts uh, in, in this way. Of course, it's, it's very pro-inflammatory on its own and can make people sick, but it can also act as, as this type of adjuvant to promote uh, specific types of immune responses. And, and it's interesting because there's uh, been different studies uh, that have tried to associate the levels of, of endotoxin in, in, in homes with allergic asthma, and, and it's interesting that different studies have come up with very different conclusions. So some have, some have found that exposure to endotoxin actually protects against the developing uh, of asthma later in life, whereas other studies have shown a positive association between endotoxin and asthma. And so uh, and the, some of these studies are associative, so it could be that uh, some of what's been attributed to endotoxin is not only endotoxin, but endotoxin is also is found where there's bacteria, but there's other bacterial products. So it's going to be important to try and tease out which of these uh, bacterial products, for example, endotoxin or flagellin, is most important at either uh, at priming allergic responses, and whether in some cases it can actually be protective again as you know preventing those allergic responses from from developing. And that's probably related to the level of of uh, endotoxin in the homes. You know, it, we've been doing this for six years, and, and Dr. Cook, I sometimes wonder if if you feel the way I do at times. It seems like the more we learn, the less we know. Uh, it's just mind-boggling sometimes how, how all these different interactions occur and how they uh, end up presenting in, in people. Um, do you feel like we're making a great deal of progress, or do we, we're just kind of scratching the surface here? Um, Well, I I think that uh, the the more you know, uh, the better off you are. Um, But but as you say, sometimes uh, the more things you find out, uh, the more questions that are raised. Uh, and so I think uh, one of the problems with with understanding asthma it's it's, it's a very there's several problems really one is a very complicated disease and it's not a single disease it's more of a spectrum of diseases and so you asked me earlier about uh, atopic asthma or allergic asthma versus other types of asthma uh, and even though some, sometimes we talk about two discrete groups it's more likely that it's more of a spectrum when and some some people have asthma, uh, components of asthma that are associated with both types. So it's, it's really a spectrum of diseases, not a single disease. Uh, the second thing is that um, there's both uh, a genetic component uh, to asthma susceptibility as well as an environmental component. Um, and, and even each of those two components are, are, are very complicated. So it's, there are very few genes, if any, where we can say, well, if you have this gene or this uh, uh, a certain uh, polymorphism, a genetic polymorphism, if you will, in a certain gene, you're going to have asthma. So in some diseases, that's true. If you have this gene, you have the disease. But that's not true for asthma. And so it's likely that, um, that the people that are genetically susceptible to asthma 
have uh, several different genes that um, each of which has a, a small predisposition towards getting asthma. And it's only when you have a, a lot of these uh, different uh, gene alleles or polymorphisms that you actually uh, get the disease. So that's that's one part of it, the the genetic complexity of it. And as as I alluded to before, the the other part is is uh, the environmental component, and and when one is a, so when one is uh, exposed to endotoxin, for example, or flagellin, although it's much less known about flagellin, uh, and, and the levels that one is exposed to uh, can can I perhaps either protect. Uh, or predisposed to asthma, and so when you combine these this complicated uh, genetic background with with other complications in the environmental exposures, it's very difficult to tease all that out and say, okay, this is what causes asthma. Fascinating, Doctor Cook. Do you? I, I know we set you up for a half an hour here. Do you? What time do you have to leave us? I want to just get our timing on our commercial break here, right? Oh, I, I can probably stay another 15 minutes. Okay, great. Well, then, why don't we do this? Let's. Uh, we're going to take a 90-second break here and thank our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Dr. Donald Cook from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. No, health science. Yep. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Donald Cook, and we were talking a little bit about allergy, asthma, and bacteria, and a whole bunch of other interesting topics. Cliff, I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance if you had any questions we didn't get to. 
No, I'm I'm okay. I'm waiting for Roundup. I think. All right, great. Then what I'd like to do is move on a little bit. Well, first, let me get to this text question. We've got a text question from a listener. It says, "In this area, how advanced is the research on RNA and junk DNA in combination with the DNA that we understand to the response of the body?" I'm not sure I understand that one, Doctor Cook, but maybe you do. Um, well, I assume that the, the RNA and, and junk DNA is, is in the uh, humans, uh, not, not the bacteria that we're, that we're talking about, which, of course, also have DNA. But um, so, so I guess the, the caller is wondering, so some, D, some DNA is, 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 is uh, transcribed into RNA, uh, and much of that RNA encodes proteins that form the building blocks of cells. Uh, there's there's some DNA that has been called junk DNA. Um, I think that uh, the more we learn about DNA structure, uh, the less we think it's junk DNA. So uh, a lot of what was previously thought junk DNA is actually important for the proper three-dimensional structure of, of DNA. So DNA is, is, is it's it's a it's a molecule. It's a very long molecule. But it's but it's it's folded into a, a alpha helical chain, and then that 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 chain is then folded upon itself in, in several different uh, layers. And so, uh, so some of the what's called junk DNA is actually um, for the structure, the three-dimensional structure of DNA. And there's also uh, regions in in DNA that even though it doesn't, uh, uh, it's not in the, the part of uh, the DNA that is translated into mRNA. It controls the transcription of that RNA. So that's kind of, kind of a general answer. Uh, with specific regard to, to asthma, I don't think uh, there have been any studies that have really addressed the role of uh, so-called junk DNA uh, versus DNA that uh, is translated into RNA. Now, when I was doing a, a little research on, on your areas of interest, one was a project called Investigating the Impact of Inhaled Microbial Products on Allergic Sensitization to Airborne Allergens. I was wondering if you could just comment on, again, in layman's terms, what, what does that mean? Right, so I guess it's really uh, saying in a slightly different way what we've been talking about. So these um, inhaled microbial products, uh, there's a number of different microbial products or things that are made by bacteria uh, that um, induce specific types of inflammatory responses. Uh, and, and, and these various uh, products that are made by bacteria are, are recognized by specific proteins on, on the surface of mammalian cells. So as, as I mentioned, uh, endotoxin is one such product. It's recognized by uh, a protein called toll-like receptor 4, uh, flagellin is recognized by toll-like receptor 5, and these toll-like receptors uh, comprise a family of proteins that, that recognize different microbial products, you know, flagellin and, and, and uh, endotoxin being but two. And so uh, what we're interested in is, is learning whether, these, whether all of these uh, different microbial products uh, essentially prime or promote the same type of immune responses or whether some of them uh, promote a specific type of immune response and others promote a different type of immune response, or whether some actually suppress immune responses. And so that's what I mean by when, we, when we're investigating the impact of different micro, inhaled microbial products 
on allergic sensitization to airborne allergens. So we've found, for example, that flagellum promotes uh, allergic sensitization. Uh, endotoxin can promote sensitization, but we found in some situations it can also inhibit uh, allergic responses. Uh, and then other other products also seem in our hands to uh, not prime allergic responses, but actually prime different types of immune responses, more directed at, at uh, viruses, for example. We had Dr. Gene Cox Ganser on the show from NIOSH, and they, they seem to have interest in, in beta-glucan, and I'm not sure if it was because it was a good indicator that there was a water-damaged building or if they had some specific concern with respect to how it you know, affects uh, allergic response or immunological response. Do you, can you comment on that? Yeah, we haven't done much work uh, with with beta-glucans ourselves, but it's, um, it's, uh, the molecules are, are that, that are, um, uh, typically associated with some, some, some mold, uh, proteins, uh, modification of mold proteins that, that have also, uh, been associated with with allergenetic or allergenic activity. It's not something that we've we've looked at with our own studies yet, although it's certainly an interesting topic. And how common is inhalation? And your, I guess, estimation or guesstimation, if you can do that for us, how common is this inhalation of microbial products? Uh, you know, a reason for exacerbation of asthma or, or increased asthma reaction? I guess it would be. Right. Um, so, so there's two different aspects of these microbial products. One would be uh, exacerbation or worsening uh, of the symptoms in people that already have asthma. And I think that's pretty well accepted to happen for endotoxin or, or LPS. Uh, so people with asthma... Um, it, Generally, it's there for a long time, kind of uh, at a very low level, and uh, that inflammation is there, but it's not actually enough to cause the airways to constrict enough to to make a difference in their in their breathing, their ability to breathe. Um, however, uh, that inflammation can be triggered again by such things as viral infection. Uh, so there's there's some people that that don't have any symptoms of asthma until they get a viral infection, for example. Uh, so endotoxin would be uh, another situation uh, of that same type where, where someone that has asthma, it's there, but it's not bothering them, and then they inhale some endotoxin. Endotoxin, as mentioned, is very pro-inflammatory, so it can kind of trigger the, the inflammation that's kind of just waiting there. And so that, that, that can be an exacerbation of existing asthma. Uh, what, what we were talking about earlier is a little bit different, and that is the the initiation of these uh, allergic responses in, in people that don't yet have asthma. And so that's where uh, endotoxin or some of these other microbial products can, can act to promote the allergic responses that ultimately give rise to asthma. So it can act either to, to sensitize mice or to exacerbate or worsen existing asthma. And I guess there's a whole bunch of things that exacerbate or worsen asthma. I mean, cold is cold air an exacerbator? Is that yeah? So, so cold and breathing cold air, um, uh, exercise can do it. There's exercise induced asthma, and 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 that's more of a uh, a physical response. So, um, so as I said, um, airway contraction or narrowing is 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 one of the primary features of asthma. 
So um, airways of asthmatics tend to be more sensitive, uh, not only to to allergens, but to any of these uh, stimuli that that aren't necessarily allergic stimuli. And once that happens, uh, they've been activated in that way, then then they rapidly uh, trigger that airway contraction, where that doesn't really happen in people that don't have this underlying inflammation and underlying changes in the structure of the airway itself. So would it be fair to say then that you know, what, what, what we really need to learn more about is what causes the asthma in the first place and that your research at least is a starting point at helping us try to figure out what, what may be causing it with respect to microbial contamination? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're uh, an immunology lab, so our, so, our, so our primary interest is in really understanding the, 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 the cells, the, the immune cells and the molecules that they make, uh, often called cytokines, how these various cells and cytokines interact uh, to give rise to the uh, allergic response. So that's, that's mostly what we're interested in. Uh, although, obviously, we're, we're also uh, interested in the, the uh, more clinical implications of our study. And so ultimately, uh, we and, and people that do this would like to you know, completely understand uh, the immunological mechanisms that could give rise to asthma. And once we understand that, then we can uh, adapt more rational interventional uh, policies to try and prevent asthma from ever developing, or once it does develop, ways of knocking it down. And I'm just curious, when you're, when you're looking at house dust, are you looking at house dust in your, you know, your standard typical home, or are you looking at water-damaged homes, or are you looking at both? We haven't looked at water-damaged homes, um, although there's going to be plenty of opportunities to do that mm-hmm. uh, recent, recently. Um, we've typically got dust from um, low-income houses, uh, and this, the dust that we got was actually part of a, a different study provided to us by an, an investigator who's interested in, in cockroach antigens and the role they play in asthma. And so the dust that we have, the dust that we obtained, were, were primarily from those types of homes. Uh, so we, we don't yet know um, whether the findings that, that we've made with regard to flagellin in, in these samples of house dust are going to necessarily apply to, to homes, that, that uh, different homes and different types of environment. Okay, let's go to our roundup here, and um, what we do is we just go around the panel here, ask one last question. What I'm going to do is save Dr. Wild. Dr. Wild's our technical director. I'll save him for last, and then we can let you go in about four or five minutes. Does that work for your schedule? Sounds good, yep. Great. Thank you, Dr. Cook. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Z-Man. Cliff, you got a final question for Dr. Cook? I, I do. Let Peter go first because mine's really obscure and it's going to take him far off the top. All right, let's do that. Let's get I'm Dr. Wild in here. Where's our music? Oh, there he is.
Yes, you do. Great, Dieter. Any comments or questions for Dr. Cole? Yeah, I have. I mean, it's a question and a comment. From what I understand is, if you live in a, how should I say, not-so-clean house where there is also moisture, this is obviously not a good environment because you have molds growing and bacteria. Bacteria, of course, need moisture, otherwise they are gone. I'm sure they are still uh, allergenic even if they are uh, dead, but that doesn't matter. But is, can, can one really say that? Can one say what? Can one say that I, if one lives in a, let's say, not so, I don't want to say dirty house, but not so clean house, there is a good chance that there are more bacteria and mold spores in the air than in one that is well kept. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely the case, yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing, just the common, we talk about um, uh, asthma and uh, allergic reactions. Uh, I unfortunately have some friends who have both. And, I mean, it's unbelievable how difficult it is to go through life with them. You have a knife in your back at all times. Right. It's, tough. it's and, a tough way to go. Yeah, we said, I, I studied endotoxins quite some time ago in, in cotton workers, um, which, of course, they produce bisphenosis, a pulmonary disease. And um, we measured endotoxin. We got a wonderful dose-response relationship between exposure to endotoxins and the lung function decline, but we used real cotton dust, which we got from a cotton gin in, I guess, South or North Carolina, doesn't matter. And even though we uh, measured endotoxins, there is a lot of other stuff in there that is not good to have in your lung. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, there may be bacteria in there, not to mention pesticides and all of those right. other things that are right. uh, automatically there. But... Uh, on the other hand, also with this asthma, I always say that, I mean, if you unfortunately have asthma, <coughs> I can stimulate <coughs> a, uh, a reaction with just about anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Cook, let me get one quick last one in here. I, I have a couple, but I'll, I'll pare it down to one. Somewhere in the, in the reading I did here prior to the show, you know, it kind of made a fairly obvious, well, maybe to me fairly obvious conclusion that if we if we clean these, you know, homes and clean up this dust, it, it should help people living in these environments. I'm just curious, have you done any actual research on, you know, how much the levels go down after cleaning, or do you have plans to do future research in that area? Because a lot of our listeners, you know, they do water damage restoration. They clean homes, whether it's cleaning and restoration or mold remediation or, or whatever they do. And and there doesn't seem to be a lot of good research that shows what we do has at least uh, in, in the scientific literature, um, you know, a good, uh, a good, results or, or something that we can look at and say, yeah, when we do this, we get X, we do Y. Right. So, um, you know, as a previous question indicated, um, when homes are dirtier, uh, to use just whatever word, there, there tends to be uh, more asthma. So, so in the inner city where there's uh, more cockroaches, more dust mites, uh, more, more bacteria perhaps, those people have a, have a higher incidence of asthma. 
So uh, by inference, you, you could probably draw the conclusion that in general, having a cleaner house is better. Whether, whether having a clean house makes asthma go away, that's a different question. It's not at all clear that, that, that that's the case. And I guess whether having too clean a house too early in your life for too long <laughs> causes other problems with that, you know, with, with right. co- you know, the, what do you call it, the hygiene hypothesis. Hygiene hypothesis, right, right, right. That, that's a, go ahead. Hey, do you have a quick comment on that? Um, I don't know if I can make it a quick comment. I, I'll try. Um, so, so the hygiene hypothesis you, I think you're referring to is, is some evidence that shows that people that uh, have some infections or, or whether there's multiple children or whether there's animals or something like that, would, for lack of a better word, have a, have a dirtier household or actually protected from developing asthma. Uh, so that's the other side of this coin. Um, and, and, and I think, again, that gets back a little bit to uh, some things I mentioned earlier in terms of the timing of exposures and the amount of exposures. Uh, so some exposures might be protective where others uh, might be risk factors for asthma. And that's, that, that's a, a huge question that, that a lot of people, including myself, are interested. But I don't think we have all the answers yet. All right. And, Cliff, I know you had a quick question. Yeah, it's kind of... You know, when I when you started talking about the flagella and all this stuff, it took me back to I think fifth grade health class. You know, I'll be sixty two in a couple of days, and you know, I remember looking at the you know they showed us uh, human seminal fluid under this microscope, and uh, I just wondered whether or not um, other organ, you know, I guess other things that have flagella could also be allergic. Uh- or at least promote allergic responses. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's one that I've wondered myself and, and haven't yet had the time to investigate. It's a great question. Okay. All right. I was thinking about it. You know, you have protein and you have, uh, you know, contact and all, all these other, you know, all these other things. But in yeah. any event. Uh, I mean, I th- yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the fact that, bac- that uh, flagellin is a bacterial product and that's the way uh, mammals, one of the ways mammals use to identify infection and, and is, is what's important. I don't think that necessarily anything that provides a locomotion, for example, like sperm, necessarily would have that same effect. Okay, cool. Val? Uh, Thank yes, you. Dr. Cook, we were wondering if you could maybe provide uh, your website or your organization's website that people could learn more, and also wondering if you had any final comments for the show today. Um, I'll, I'll look into the first question about uh, more information. Um, I don't control the government website, <laughs> um, and we are at the government. Um, well, really, I just uh, just like to thank Indoor Air Quality for your interest in, in, in our lab's research, and, and I'm really looking forward to future studies that kind of address some of the, the questions that have been asked that I couldn't answer. Uh, you know, whether they be our studies or or others, because I think it's an exciting time to be doing research in this area. Yeah, that was one of the questions I didn't get to ask you. I guess with all the you know DNA and and all the things you're able to do today, it's it's got to be a really challenging but exciting time to be doing the type of work you do. 
Indeed it is, yep. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Dr. Donald Cook for joining us. A great show today, and uh, looking forward to getting some feedback from the listeners on this one. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Interesting show today, Chuck. Excellent. Of course, uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and my engineer, Roxy V. Valbender, who I forgot last week. I felt so bad. And, of course, our growing group of loyal listeners. Um, Next week... We've got the um, the attorney show next week. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, oh, geez, I didn't write it down here. But, class action. Oh, yeah, the class action lawsuit. Uh, Ackerman, uh, attorney Ackerman will be on with us. That big class action thing we've got going on or we, we suspect maybe going on with respect to some of the preferred provider programs out there. And I uh, look forward to that show. So come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Sometimes you fall down, can't get back up We're hiding behind skin and stoops of How come we don't say I love you enough Till it's too late, it's not too late I turn hungry for the food that won't come And we could make a feast from If your life lasts before you, what would you wish you would have done? Yeah, we gotta stop looking at the hands of the time we've been given it. This is all we got, then we gotta stop thinking it. Every second counts on the clock that's ticking. Gotta live like we're dying. We got 86 400 seconds in a day to turn it all around or to throw it all away. Gotta tell them that we love them while we got the chance to say. Gotta has been another IAQ Radio production.